theologians in the ancient church uh, often wondered whether creation contains what they refer to as vestiges of the Trinity. And so they were asking whether or not if, if something in nature indicated how God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. After all, right, Romans 1 verse 20 says God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Right, so creation declares truth about God in what we call natural or general revelation through the things that have been made. Some theologians in the ancient church wondered if nature spoke not just about God's sort of general attributes, but also about God as triune. Now, there were some creative attempts, as you might imagine, to identify marks of the Trinity in creation, like the suggestion that uh, our human constitution as mind, soul, and body might indicate God's triune nature. But most rightly concluded that we cannot know God's triune nature by reason alone, but that we need God to explain to us that he is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit. We cannot know that truth unless God tells it to us. We need special revelation for this topic. Now, so certainly, we depend upon the Scripture to know and to explain to us that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, even though God's image bearers are stamped with knowledge of God's character so that, so that we are innately aware of God's standards of justice, righteousness, we do not inherently know that God is three persons. Still though, still, perhaps, perhaps there's something about creation that fittingly confirms what we know from scripture about how God is triune. Right? Like how we may not know what our birthday present is until we have unwrapped it, but upon opening it, hindsight recognizes all of the, all of the clues and signs about what it would be. So too we need God to tell us that he is triune, but the fact that he is triune indeed perhaps makes perfect sense when we consider aspects of creation in hindsight, in particular, the way that we are made in his image. In Genesis 2, after God created Adam, he observed that it was not good for the man to be alone. Just as our God can but dwell only in eternal, loving communion as Father, Son, and Spirit, so too should his image bearers be marked by communion. They shouldn't be alone. Our need for fellowship does not reveal God's triune nature to us, and still 
As those who bear God's image and represent him in the world, our need for communion corresponds to the nature of our God, who eternally dwells in Trinitarian communion. When God made the woman so that Adam would not be alone, it it pinpointed how the God who is eternally in communion as Father, Son, and Spirit should be represented by a creature who also has a fitting partner for communion on the creaturely plane. And so then God created man, male and female, in his image, fit for communion with him, but also fit for creaturely communion together as a reverberation of our triune God who exists in eternal communion. The main point today, as we think about Genesis 2, is that God's image best reflects God as we live and work in communion. God's image reflects God as we live and work in communion. We'll think about that in three points, our commission, our commitment, and our communion. So first, our commission. If you think back to to several weeks ago, uh, when when we looked at God's creation of the garden in Eden uh, as a place for communion, that was the theme we emphasized there, was that this garden is a place for communion. We saw that Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4 through, through the end of the chapter, rewinds the creation story to zoom in on and expand upon the specific creation of humanity. So, so in a more compressed fashion, Genesis 1, 24 to 31, described these events as the sixth day. And Genesis 2 opens up those same events in more detail. Now, as we think about this passage before us, although one is more obvious, there are two crucial aspects to consider in this account of how God made humanity, male and female, in his image. There is a specific aspect about God creating man and woman to be husband and wife, which makes this passage naturally important for how we think about marriage. But marriage does not exhaust this passage's relevance for us. And there is the more general aspect that this passage teaches that people need to be in communion with other people. This sermon then addresses that more general aspect. And the next time that we are in Genesis together, we will tackle the more specific aspect about marriage then. So fundamentally, to get our heads around this main point, our need for communion with other creatures fit for communion with us, who are fitting partners for fellowship, marks part of our existence as God's image. Since the true God exists eternally in the communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our our need for communion, then, makes us an analogy, even a faint analogy, to the God who is the communion of Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. Now, right, an analogy draws a relationship between two things that are not identical, but correspond, right? So, kind of, the, the famous analogy, right, Forrest Gump said, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Well, life isn't a box of chocolates, but there's a relationship between the two. And even then, the analogy is specific. It's not about everything about chocolate or life. The point is not that life is sweet uh, or that it has lots of goodness inside, but the analogy is specifically about how life and boxes of chocolates hold unexpected things. You don't know what's in store in either. Now, the point for our analogy as the image of God is that God's image bearers are not identical to God, but we are like him in some ways appropriate to creatures. God is holy and righteous, and so we have the moral law stamped on our hearts as his image. God dwells in eternal communion as the Trinity, so we live in need of communion. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, narrates to us how when, when God created humanity in his image, he conferred with himself about his creative work. God's self-deliberation of let us make man in our own image is most likely the first recorded instance of a conversation within the Trinity, of which there are many more, especially in the Psalms. Genesis 1 is replete with instances of God speaking to the creation. Let there be, let the earth bring forth, But only when fashioning his image does God talk to himself. Just like Genesis 1 narrated that God conferred with himself before creating, so too Genesis creating us. So too Genesis 2.18 again tells us how the triune God self-deliberated again in connection to creating his image bearers. So the creation of humanity is linked in each instance with a conversation within the Godhead. And these two instances of God's self-deliberation mark these two points of the creation story as pivotal and prominent. In Genesis 2, 18, God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will, there's God planning, I will make him a helper fit for him. In between God creating Adam and creating the woman, God observed that it was not good that the man should be alone. The only time in the creation narrative that God said that something he made was not good. As it is, was. Both narratives about creating humanity are tied 
to God's internal conversation, fellowship, communion. And so as God forged his image bearers, those born out of the Trinitarian conversation are marked with a need for communion. Our commission, then, is to live and work together in creaturely communion with one another so that we properly reflect and represent the God whose image we bear. And that brings us to our second point, our commitment. <clears throat> the last point, uh, simply, I hope, only just established a theological premise that since God is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit in communion, His image bearers fittingly need communion at the creaturely level. Humanity belongs together since God made us with a specific intent that we would not be alone. That premise has significant bearing on how we live before God. And this point explores how that theological foundation shapes our commitments that we should have, at least, to one another. As Adam named the animals, God brought them before him, and Adam named them in verse 19. It becomes clear to him and to readers that none of them are truly fitting to provide Adam with proper creaturely communion. It says that in the text. God's observation that it was not good for Adam to be alone, though, was not simply uh, or even directly first about his loneliness and companionship. Adam had the significant task of being the priest in the garden temple, as we've seen, who was to fill the earth, and he could not accomplish that task by himself. And so God made Eve to help Adam in the priestly task. Now, Far from infringing upon the issue that God has appointed only men to ministerial ordination among God's people, this appointment to help in the priestly task relate God's people as a whole, these were all of God's people at that point, function as a royal priesthood within the world, as First Peter 2.9 says is still true of the church holistically today. Still, though, Adam needed a fitting partner to work alongside him so that he might fulfill his vocation, his calling, his commission as God's image. And so we cannot accomplish what God calls us to do in the world on our own. We just can't. Nor are we meant to. It's not how God designed us. But sometimes I fear that we try to live as though we should. It is a terrible human tendency that in times of distress and trial in particular, 
We distance and isolate ourselves from other people. We collapse in on ourselves. We retreat within rather than seeking the communion that will help us overcome the difficulties before us. But it never goes well that we would be apart. Consider, right, if you will, the story of the, the story of the Tower of Babel and how God cursed those who tried to build this tower for their own glory. What happens in that story? God cursed them by separating and dividing them. And so separation and division are a curse. That has drastic ramifications for the life of Christ's church. Our existence as the kingdom of priests bearing God's name into the world hark back to that creation principle of God's people working together in creaturely communion. In that respect, right, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 about how we are the body of Christ takes on new significance in how it illustrates that we cannot properly function as the church without one another. That's not a limitation. That's a design. It's a designed limitation. As the arm needs the leg and the eye needs the ear, so too do each one of you need each other as the body of Christ. And that calls us to consider our life together. The church must be a people who look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians 2.4, right? Very pointedly, that requires that we give our fellowship to other people. No matter how introverted or extroverted we are, no matter how much you may like or dislike the people of your congregation. We have to be committed to communion. It's why we were made. We don't have an option. And we have to offer our communion to other people. When we are fearful of the world or about the future, we tend to retreat into solitude. We develop reasons why we should be alone, why we should not seek after fellowship with others, not just offer. Sometimes we develop reasons why we shouldn't offer fellowship. Sometimes we develop reasons why we shouldn't seek fellowship with others or develop reasons why we believe no one should want fellowship with us. We get angry and bitter with one another, and we become critical. And we become divided, and we become separated, which is a curse. And you see so pointedly, as we look to the week ahead, why this matters so deeply. And so our commitment must be to have communion together 
as God's people the best we can. That brings us to our final point, our communion. So so far we've, to remind ourselves, so far we've thought about how God's image, uh, bearing God's image, commissions us uh, to need communion, uh, even among creatures. And how that requires us to maintain commitment to one another. And now we need to reflect on what that looks like to live life together as the people of God. God's triune communion is others-centered. As we see through the actions and the prayers, even that we have already read, the Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, and the Spirit glorifies both. You, Christian, must must live your life in communion with the church in an others-centered way. President John F. Kennedy, Jr., no, famously said, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It's easy uh, to think of all the ways that we want our church family to serve us. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to, to call to mind the things that we wish we as the church would do for us. But we often find ourselves actually despite that ease, most satisfied by serving someone else. It's when we find true fulfillment. And there's something fitting about that. And there are two things that we can do in this light. From all the things that we've considered, there are two things, at least, yeah, two things that we're going to talk about what we can do with this. First, this pandemic season makes community very difficult to facilitate. And so we need to reach out to one another more. And that is especially true. Now, I, yeah, I wrote that application on Thursday. Uh, and it's even more true now, as we look to the weeks ahead, right, things are going to be harder in terms of obtaining and facilitating communion as we look in, at the days ahead. And so that means we have to be more intentional and more directed, put more effort into reaching out to other people who indeed may need us. Here's the catch. You may not feel as if that fellowship, if that communion would benefit you. It may not. I don't really believe that, but for sake of argument, maybe it won't. Maybe you don't need it. Maybe you feel like you don't need deeper or more extended fellowship. Maybe you're fine. Maybe you feel fine, at least. It doesn't matter. Because someone else need your fellowship. 
Just because you may not feel the lack doesn't mean that someone else does not feel the lack, and you could be the contributing factor to help your neighbor, your brother sister in Christ. And sometimes those people who need us most are not the ones who first come to mind, which is exactly why you should reach out to them and put more effort into this. I I don't want to be heavy-handed with this, but I want to exhort you thoroughly for the days ahead. Right? You could, there are ways that we can find this out. There are lists of church members. Take note of the participants in our Zoom meeting. Contact people that maybe you haven't contacted before in the weeks ahead. Maybe, maybe you don't feel like contacting that person would do you much good. It doesn't matter. Contact them anyway because it might be good for them. Please. Contact maintains communion. Second, because division is a curse, we need to work hard not to be critical or derisive, especially in really difficult times. Sinners gravitate towards criticism. And we have to put that there. Churches easily develop cliques and subgroups, often fostered out of complaints about various features of church life. And that negativity feeds the curse of Babel. So don't do it. If you have an issue, this is, yeah, this is so important now, right? It is easy for us to feel disappointed by one another and by the church as we look at the weeks ahead. It will not be what we want. It won't be. There's no way around that. But if you have an issue, if you have something that you hope would happen, if you have a need, go to someone directly rather than complaining to third party. Saying to someone, I need this from you or from the church will get us all further to road together in unity than moaning to someone else about how everyone has failed you. People are not trying to fail you, usually. But they don't always know what you need. Go if someone has let you down. Or if someone has not recognized the need, go to them in hopes of clarification or in hopes of reconciliation. Go humbly, thinking this will be good, or go repentantly yourself and work for the betterment of everyone. Don't complain. Build better relationships to foster further communion. Redirect your efforts to making a contribution for improvement rather than just complaining. It is easy, it is so easy, and it's going to be easy when we're on our own to become angry, bitter, and suspicious when we are apart. And so find ways to be together in some way and commit, commit, please, commit to crucifying those sinful tendencies in your heart.
It won't happen on its own. You've got to make the decision now. The reason that we have to be so mindful about our commitment and its application is because sin has fractured our communion. Our communion has a vertical and a horizontal dimension, but sin fractures both. Sin as rebellion against God and His law has put us at enmity with our Maker and destroys the communion between Creator and creature. Sin fractures our vertical communion with God by making us His enemies. And further, sin, by how it corrupts our nature, fractures our horizontal communion with one another and destroys creaturely communion. We become self-centered and hostile, which is why nations have wars, why friends gossip about one another, why kids are disobedient, and why we make a mess of so many relationships. We have broken our relationship with God, so have unwound our communion with the Creator, and then we attack one another. And that becomes crystal clear right from the outset of sin, right? As Adam immediately blamed his wife and blamed God for giving him his wife. So demonstrating that communion with the Creator is broken and communion among creatures is damaged. And the solution to both our plights is in Jesus Christ. Our communion with God and with each other is found in Christ. In Romans 5, Paul wrote, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Don't miss that one. For the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Sin results in a death sentence and separates us from God who is Himself abundant life. Christ died precisely to bear your curse of separation from God. Did he not cry out, Why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken for your sake. He endured the divine wrath that was due for your sin so that God's enemies would become God's friends by faith. We are reconciled to communion with God in Christ. But that reconciliation extends to the horizontal dimension that is our creaturely communion as well. We read John 17, 
where on the basis of his saving work, Christ prayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Trinitarian basis of creaturely communion right there. Even as we are one, the Father and Son and eternity, let our people be in communion. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Just as we were created for communion with God, so we are redeemed into communion with God. But just as the triune God's eternal communion reverberated into his image through our need for creaturely communion, so too Christ prayed that we are restored unto that communion with one another. He did ask that we would be one, just as the Son is one with the Father. Christ is the source of our communion. He has restored us to God and has granted us a family on earth. Let's not let that pass us by in the days ahead. Lockdown may indeed sound like solitude to many of us. And you need to remember that you, Christian, are not alone. If you are not in Christ, please do feel separated from God, because you are. But he invites you to receive the gospel by faith and be reconciled to God. But Christian... Christian to you, your existence is in communion with God. Eternal life is to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And that is how you live. You are in union with Christ who has reunited you with full relationship to the triune God. You are never alone. You cannot be. And he has called us to reflect that as we love one another. Let me exhort you to keep that in mind. In your hardest moments, it's easiest to do nothing. Pick up the phone. Pray. Be together the best you can. Not not just because it's the right thing to do but because it's what you're made to be by creation and by salvation, we live for communion with one another and with the God whose image we bear. Let's pray. Father God, we do indeed come to you in this moment looking ahead and knowing uh, that it may feel lonely for the next few weeks. Things may feel difficult. And we carry that as a genuine weight. And we pray that you will help us, that as we have just now reflected on creaturely communion and how that reflects the fact that we have genuine communion with our Creator, 
We pray that we will experience that, that we will know it in our hearts and minds, and that we will do our best to enact and apply the fact that we are creatures fit for communion. We cannot be otherwise. Grant us wisdom in how to pursue that. Help us to be excited about the ways that we can have fellowship. And bless us in our efforts. Sustain us in this time. And remind us thoroughly of the blessings and inescapable communion we have in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.